Hello, um, I'm Gracie and I'll be reading the Bible today. If you're new to public meeting, we read the Bible every week because we believe that that's how God speaks to us. Um, so we'll be reading from Mark chapter 14 verses 26 to 42 and you should find a copy in your handout. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I've risen, I'll go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, Even if all fall away, I will not. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, Today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James and John along with him and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of, into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Well, walking around uh, talking to people at UWA, I reckon one of the biggest objections that people often have to Christianity is uh, that you can't claim that Jesus is the only way to God. Or you can claim it, but if you want to claim it, that's arrogant. That's kind of a a proud position to be taking. Uh, In fact, I heard a guy say earlier today that um, you can kind of... People will be pretty happy with whatever... Uh, you might say about Christianity, but the time where they really get to hate you is uh, when you claim that Jesus is the only way to God. So if that's you, please don't hate me just yet, uh, at least. Um, But why is that, that people are so, uh, react so strongly to the idea that Jesus is the only way to God? Well, I think uh, sometimes it's because we don't want conflict. We look around the world and we see these different religions and we see conflicts that are caused by them. You can look at uh, the issues with Islamic, uh, Islamist terrorism at the moment. Uh, you can think about Northern Ireland and the conflicts between Roman Catholics and Protestants. And when you're dealing with something as important as God, well, there's bound to be conflict, isn't there? If someone's going to claim that Their way is the only way to God, that there's only one way. More often, though, I suspect it's just more a sort of general vibe of society that um, it seems like any sort of truth claim is suspect. We are dubious about people who claim to have the truth because that seems to be an exercise of power over me. They seem to be if they're claiming the truth, especially a truth that is supposed to affect me and how I live, well, 
they seem to be saying that I ought to do what they do. And perhaps that they're better than me because they know the truth and I don't. But how can anyone really say that? How can anyone claim to know the truth? Uh, There's a terrific poem by John Godfrey Sachs that kind of illustrates it. It's called The Blind Men and the Elephant. You might have come across the idea before, but uh, the poem's a ripper, so I thought I'd read it. It was six men of Indostan, to learning much inclined, who went to see the elephant, though all of them were blind, that each by observation might satisfy his mind. The first approached the elephant and, happening to fall against his broad and sturdy side, at once began to bawl, God bless me, but the elephant is very like a wall. The second feeling of the tusk cried, Ho, what have we here? So very round and smooth and sharp to meet is mighty clear. This wonder of an elephant is very like a spear. The third approached the animal and, happening to take the squirming trunk within his hands, thus boldly up and spake, I see, quoth he, The elephant is very like a snake. The fourth reached out his eager hand and felt about the knee. What most this wondrous beast is like is mighty plain, quoth he. Tis clear enough the elephant is very like a tree. The fifth, who chanced to touch the ear, said, E'en the blindest man can tell what this resembles most. Deny the fact who can. This marvel of an elephant is very like a fan. The sixth no sooner had begun about the beast to grope than seizing on the swinging tail that fell within his scope, I see, quoth he, the elephant is very like a rope. And so these men of Indostan disputed loud and long, each in his own opinion exceeding stiff and strong, though each was partly in the right and all were in the wrong. So oft in theologic wars the disputants, I ween, rail on in utter ignorance of what each other mean. And prayed about an elephant not one of them has seen. It's a cool poem, isn't it? Um, And do you get what he's saying? He's sort of talking about the different religions of the world. The different men are these different religions. And they're all trying to explore this thing they've heard of but they've never seen. This elephant. And the elephant is God. And they've all kind of picked up on some true aspects of the elephant. Yeah, I mean, part of the elephant, it's partly true to say he's a little bit like a rope. It's kind of true to say he's a little bit like a tree or a wall or a snake or whatever. Each was partly in the right. And that's fine, that's great. But in each of them claiming to be the only one that's right, all were in the wrong. And so they rail on in utter ignorance and talk about a God that none of them have ever seen. I like the poem. It's a fun poem. It's about 150 years old now, but I think it captures the sort of vibe of our society quite well and how we think about religion. Various religions, Christianity included, might have something interesting to say, something useful, but the problem is that they cross the line when they claim to know the truth, to be the whole truth. Christianity crosses the line when it says that Jesus is the only way to God. It's a common sort of idea, but there is a problem with it at a fairly fundamental level, isn't there? So we've got this funny poem about these blind men fumbling around an elephant, all disagreeing, but the thing is, how do we know that they're wrong? 
Because actually, when you stop and think about it, there is someone who's claiming to know the whole truth, isn't there? It's the narrator. (laughs) It's the author of the poem. He's claiming to see the whole truth that each of these men only grasp a part of. You fools, you've got it all wrong. And I see the whole truth. Which is, of course, exactly what all the others are doing. The narrator, the author of the poem, is at least as arrogant as all the others, if not more so. And in fact, the whole postmodern approach to saying that there is no way to know the truth, well, it's actually a sneaky way of claiming to know the truth while simultaneously rejecting everyone else's claim without ever having to investigate them, without ever having to think about them seriously. It seems profound and humble, but actually to say that there is no way, no one way to God, is intellectually lazy and arrogant. There's this problem that we can't avoid. We can't avoid making truth claims about God. We have to make them. Even saying that we can't make truth claims about God is making a truth claim about God. But the thing is that these claims are actually important. This is not a trivial thing of, like, what flavour of ice cream is the best. This is actually about eternal life and death. This is about the possibility of knowing God and what he wants. It's about meaning and purpose and what happens when we die, who we owe our allegiance to. These are not trivial topics that you can just sort of go, ah, it doesn't matter. Shrugging our shoulders is lazy and arrogant, but it's also dangerous because what if you're wrong? Throughout Mark's biography of Jesus, We read about Jesus teaching, healing people, miraculously calming a storm, feeding 5,000 people from a handful of bread rolls and a few fish. But more than that, in the Gospel according to Mark, Jesus makes some pretty hefty claims to be God, to be God come in the flesh. So what do we do with that? The people at the time, they've... They've sort of been following Jesus around, some of them. Uh, Others are opposed to him. And as early as chapter 3, the religious and the secular rulers, the Jewish leaders and the Romans, have been plotting to kill him. Jesus himself has repeatedly said that he must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and after three days rise again. And through it all, Jesus has seemed in total control. He's totally calm, he's totally chilled about everything. Uh, Yes, he does get into arguments with people, but he's always in control of the situation. And at first that seems to continue in the passage that we read a little earlier. Jesus and his disciples have just eaten the annual Passover meal. Uh, And as they head out for an evening stroll in a public garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, the Mount of Olives, uh, I guess a little bit like King's Park in Perth, Jesus still seems in control. He tells them in verse 27, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. 
But after I've risen, I'll go ahead of you into Galilee. If you stop and think about that verse for a moment, there's some pretty extraordinary claims that Jesus is making in that. In the space of two sentences, Jesus claims to predict the future. You'll all fall away. He claims that the Old Testament book of Zechariah, written hundreds of years earlier, is actually about him. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. He's quoting the book, Zechariah. And then he also claims that he's going to rise from the dead. Claims to predict the future. Claims that uh, stuff written hundreds of years earlier was written about him. And claims that he's going to rise from the dead. I think those claims put Jesus in a class of his own. I'm not aware of any other religious leader who's ever claimed anything like that. I don't think Buddha ever claimed that. Certainly Muhammad didn't. It's a fairly remarkable sort of claim. Sure, some people will claim to predict the future. Some even get it right. If you make enough predictions, you'll probably get it right eventually. Others have claimed that the Old Testament is about them, although it never seems to quite fit as well as it does for Jesus. I think the real kicker is the claim to rise from the dead. I mean, that's a a remarkable claim. Uh, And it's a historical claim as well. It's something that you can investigate. It's such an outrageous claim that no one else makes it. Moses never claimed that. Buddha didn't. Muhammad didn't. And yet Jesus did. And not only did he claim that he would do it, he actually did it. You can read about it in a couple of chapters later in Mark. But that's not the bit that I want to focus on today. What I want to focus on is this really strange bit that we come across in this passage. Where although Jesus had seemed in total control totally confident that God will raise him from the dead, over the course of the next ten verses or so, he completely falls apart. His best friend, Peter, doesn't. Peter's totally confident. Have a look at it there in verse 29. Jesus has just talked about, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And Peter says, well, even if all fall away, I won't. And Jesus says, truly I tell you, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you'll disown me three times. Another claim to predict the future. And Peter insists emphatically, no way, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. It's a very sort of who-are kind of moment from the disciples, you know. Yeah, no, Jesus, doesn't matter, you know, whatever happens, we'll stick with you. Even if we have to die, we're sticking with you. It's a very sort of brave, courageous, loyal sort of approach to death. But Jesus himself is a wreck. Have a look at verse 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James and John along with him and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. 
Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, this hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. It's a really strange part because Jesus seems to be totally stressing out in a way that he never has up to this point. Jesus never seems to be the anxious type, doesn't seem neurotic, and yet here he's deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Like, that's pretty overwhelmed. That's pretty sorrowful. He falls to the ground. He prays earnestly that God will save him. Jesus has been predicting his death for some chapters now in the Gospel according to Mark, for some time in his life. And yet now he's totally freaking out at the thought of it. Which is weird, because... Lots of people have faced death with a lot more calm and confidence than this. Think about Socrates, 300 years earlier. He's sentenced to death by the government of Athens for corrupting the youth with his philosophy. And he drank poison quite happily. Gave a long speech that Plato recorded to his, to his disciples, telling them, no, don't worry about me, it's all good. Yes, we're sad, but I'm going to die and that'll be okay. I get to escape my body. Uh, Don't mourn for me. It's all good. Uh, And then he dies. About 300 years after Jesus, uh, just recently, there was the, um, we commemorated the death of St. Lawrence. Uh, Turns out St. Lawrence was a Christian guy in Italy. And um, the Roman governor told him that he had to bring all the wealth of the church to the Roman government. And so St Lawrence went and collected up all the the poor and the widows that the church had been supporting uh, and brought them to the governor's house and dumped them there and said, this is the wealth of the church. This is what we value. Uh, The governor was not impressed and so sentenced St Lawrence to be roasted on a griddle on a gridiron, it's a giant gridiron constructed, sandwiched him, put him over a fire and roasted him. And the story goes that St Lawrence said at one point, uh, I'm well done on this side, you can turn me over now. Think, wow. <laughs> so now he's the patron saint of cooks and chefs and comedians. <laughs> that's, a, that's a pretty courageous way to face death. Uh, if I could go out with a laugh like that, that would be all right. This year, it's 500 years since the Reformation began in Germany. And the Reformation came to England not long after that. But under Queen Mary, there's the Counter-Reformation. And a number of the reformers were killed, including uh, Bishops Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, who were tied to a stake back-to-back uh, in Oxford. In fact, you can go there. You can, uh, there's a little brick in the road that marks the spot where the stake was put. And they were burnt alive. And according to the eyewitnesses, uh, when Ridley started crying out in pain from the flames, Latimer said to him, play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. Now that's a way to die, isn't it? 
to have that kind of calm and assurance. The disciples, they seem to have that. They're expecting that they might die. They're anticipating it. They seem fairly okay about it. In fact, so okay that when Jesus goes back to them, he discovers they've all fallen asleep. They've all dozed off. Here he is, just in absolute anguish, terrified about death, and they're just like having a little nap in the local park. He goes and wakes them up, he urges them to pray, and he goes off and prays again himself. And when he comes back, he finds they've fallen asleep again, does it a third time, they're still asleep, and now they're probably a bit embarrassed by this point, but they don't don't seem very anxious about death. They know they might die, but they're not in anguish about it. They're not throwing themselves on the ground, praying to God to save them. So why is Jesus? I think the answer is in his prayer in verse 36, where Jesus prays, Abba, that's the Aramaic for dad, dad, father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. So what's making Jesus so distressed? Is it simply the thought of death? Well, I don't think so. It seems to be this this cup that he refers to. (coughs) What is that? I mean, clearly it's metaphorical. It's not literal. And I guess we have cups that are sort of metaphorical as well. Like you can talk about a sporting cup, like the Melbourne Cup. And yes, it is like a literal giant silver thing, but actually that's not normally the way we, what we mean by it. We kind of mean the race, or winning the cup is about victory. But clearly the cup here is not about victory, it's not about glory. That would be something to look forward to, but Jesus is actually shying away from this cup. So what is it? Well, actually, it was a fairly common phrase. It's used multiple times in the Old Testament, the bit of the Bible that was written before Jesus. And God talks there many times about the cup of his wrath, his anger. Uh, Here's a quote from the book of Isaiah, written uh, somewhere around six to 800 years before Jesus, where God says, Rise up, Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. You who have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes people stagger. It seems like the cup that Jesus is referring to is a metaphor for God's wrath. It's like a giant cup of alcohol that you're forced to drink down to the very dregs. I know some of you are probably thinking, well, that doesn't sound so bad. I could could go a giant cup of alcohol. But try sculling half a dozen bottles of red wine and tell me how you feel afterwards. But actually, you probably won't tell me anything, will you? Because you may not even exist. (laughs) If you scull that much alcohol, you'll be a shattered, ruined wreck, quite possibly forever. And that's what this cup is about. This is the metaphor that Jesus is using. It's God's anger poured out on him that will leave him a wreck, ruined, destroyed, dead. Which kind of raises the question, why? 
Like, why is God angry in the first place? The author David Foster Wallace says, Everything in my own immediate experience supports my deep belief that I'm the absolute centre of the universe. The realest, most vivid and important person in existence. We rarely think about this sort of natural, basic self-centredness because it's so socially repulsive. But it's pretty much the same for all of us. It's our default setting, hardwired into our boards at birth. And the so-called real world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings because the so-called real world of men and money and power comes merrily along in a pool of fear and anger and frustration and craving and worship of self. I don't know whether Wallace was aware of this. I presume he was. He seems a pretty literate kind of guy. But he's echoing the Bible. The Bible says that we all act as though we're the centre of the universe. And the Bible agrees that it is repulsive. Not just socially repulsive, but actually repulsive to God. Our self-centredness is incredibly offensive to him. Because actually God is the centre of the universe. He's the creator and the sustainer of everything. To turn our back on him, to act as though we're calling the shots and, yeah, well, he can give us nice things occasionally, but don't, don't expect us to sort of thank you or anything. Don't expect us to live as though you're God and we're not. I mean, come on. Well, that's offensive. It's sort of giving God the finger, slapping him in the face. But everyone else gets caught in the shockwave. The evil we see around us, the evil that we see in us, is an expression of our rejection of God and the glorification of ourselves. I mean, everywhere you look, there's terrible stuff that's happening. People sometimes talk about outrage culture, but actually there's a lot to be outraged about. This week we've seen footage of white supremacists marching in the US. That's awful, isn't it? Evil. But what is it except self-centredness? Thinking that you're the centre of everything and the others should get out of the way. It's the same with domestic violence or sexual assault or corporate greed or political cowardice. They're all the result of thinking that I am the most important, the most real, the most significant person in the world and everything should revolve around me. Stuff the rest. When you see that, doesn't it make you angry? When you see people behaving like that? Well, I hope it does. Because otherwise you're just kind of shrugging your shoulders and saying, eh, I'm okay with evil. But the thing is, we're part of it too, aren't we? You are. You may not be a white supremacist. I hope you're not. But whether you're white or black or brown or yellow or whatever, we're not actually that different, are we? We just have different ways of expressing our self-centeredness. But the self-centeredness is still there. The so-called real world of men and money and power, the fear and anger and frustration and craving and worship of self. You recognise that in yourself, don't you? 
desire for money, power, the fear, the anger, the worship of self. It is disgusting. It is repulsive. We're angry when we see it in others. And God's angry when he sees it in us. He's not angry because he doesn't love us. He's angry because he does love us. Because he loves us so deeply. If God didn't give two hoots about us, he wouldn't be angry at all. So, whatever, suffer. But he actually cares about us. And it appalls him to see what we do. To see what we've become. The way we treat him, the source of everything good. The way we treat the rest of his creation. His people, his creatures, his world. Most of you, I presume, are not parents. But I think you can understand that a parent can love a child more than they thought was ever possible. And yet still be furiously angry with them at the way they behave, at their attitude, at what they see them becoming. Not because they don't love them, but because they love them so much. And it appalls them to see what they're becoming. Well, that's God with us. And it's God's anger at our evil, at our self-centeredness, what the Bible calls sin, that makes Jesus collapse in distress and anguish. Not because God is angry at Jesus, but because Jesus is about to drink God's anger, drink the cup of it, right down to the very dregs. In his death, Jesus is going to take God's anger at our sin on himself. And that's what leaves him this shattered, terrified wreck. But what's all this got to do with Jesus being the only way to God? Well, the question is, if the real problem is God's anger at our sin, at our self-centeredness, what's the solution? And at this point, I reckon that religions are kind of like uh, the blind men groping around the elephant. There's this, this sort of sense that there is something there and uh, we ought to find out about it. We're all trying to feel out how to try harder to do better, how to impress God so that we won't get in trouble. They have different ways of doing it. Islam has its five pillars. Buddhism has the Noble Eightfold Path. Uh, modern Judaism urges people to live ethical lives. Uh, Hinduism has this whole range of practices aimed at impressing the gods. They're all kind of trying to feel out the same thing. How do we impress God? How do we make things okay between us and him? But the question is, do any of them actually deal with God's anger at our sin? Do any of them actually free us from self-centeredness and turn us back to God? And I think if you reflect on it, the answer has to be no. That with the best will in the world, all they can do is reinforce our self-centeredness because they all tell us, you can do it. Just try harder. If you follow this program, if you keep these principles, if you do these practices, then you'll be fine. You can do it. 
Try harder. Be nicer. You can do it. But it turns out that Christianity is a different animal altogether. All the other religions say you can do it. But Jesus says, no, you can't. But by taking God's anger on himself, drinking the cup of his wrath, Jesus actually takes what we deserve on himself. He dies so that we might live. No longer heading for death and judgment, living for ourselves, rejecting God, but actually forgiven with Jesus at the centre, heading for eternal life as we live for him. And to claim that you see the whole picture, that there are actually many ways to God, well, that makes Jesus look pretty stupid, doesn't it? Because if there was some other way that we could get to God, then Jesus was pretty dumb to go through the agony of the Garden of Gethsemane. God was pretty stupid to allow his only son to die for our sins if he could have just said, you know what, guys, just try harder. Do better. To say that there are many ways to God, it, it sounds humble at first, but it's actually profoundly arrogant. It's saying that God and Jesus are blind fools. But you, oh, you, you know better. And at first glance, it might seem arrogant to say that Jesus is the only way to God. But actually, it's the opposite. Because it's not saying, I'm better than you, or I'm better than someone else, or I'm better than another religion. It's actually just saying, I can't do it. I'm not good enough. I need Jesus to do it for me. And that actually destroys both our pride and our despair. It destroys our despair at never being able to be good enough because Jesus has been good enough for us. He's won the eternal life for us. But at the same time, it destroys pride because instead of creating people who are arrogant, who lord it over people of other religions or of no religion at all, thinking that we're reconciled to God by our own greatness or our own efforts or something like that, Well, Christianity says, no, that's not how it works. We're just beggars bursting with joy to tell our fellow beggars about the God who gave us bread. But the question is, what are you going to do? Because in the end, there's only two options, I think. Either... You go with Jesus or you call him a fool. Do you think you can be good enough for God? Or have you recognised that you can't be? Do you want to continue as though you're the centre of the universe? Or will you admit that it's actually Jesus? Because this is not a trivial thing. This is not a flavour of ice cream thing. This is about meaning and purpose and eternal life and death. It's about knowing God. Now, for some of you, this might be the first time you've heard anything like this and you've realised, oh, maybe I I do need to investigate Jesus more. I can't just go, oh, you know, they're all the same. 
Others of you have already investigated Jesus and you know that he is the only way to God. And if that's you, if you're in that situation, I want to give you a chance to respond to God today. You can do it simply by talking to him in your head. Um, He hears you. We won't. That's all right. And you could say something like this. Dear God, I'm sorry for living as though I'm in charge and you're not. Please forgive me for having turned my back on you and for the harm I've caused to others. Please help me to live with Jesus in charge of my life. That's the kind of thing you might like to say. In fact, I'm going to pray it now and I'll leave a bit of space for you to echo it in your head if you want to do that. So uh, if that's something that you'd like to say to God, let's do it now. Dear God, I'm sorry for living as though I'm in charge and you're not. Please forgive me for having turned my back on you. And forgive me for the harm I've caused to others. Please help me to live with Jesus in charge of my life. Amen. Now, if that's you, if you've prayed that for the first time, then know that God has heard you, that he welcomes you into his family. Uh, And that's a great thing, to be in the family of God. Uh, We'd love to welcome you into the family as well. So we've got some little feedback cards there. Um, And if you pull them out at the moment, if we all pull them out, um, you can have a look at it. There's a little box on the back there. To tick if you've prayed that prayer, deciding that you want to become a follower of Jesus. Uh, and there's other options there as well. You can say that you liked or you didn't like the talk, um, or that you'd like to find out more. You can make a, a comment or a question, and if you put your name and contact details there, uh, I'll try and get back to you with an answer. Uh, and I'll give you a little bit of time to fill them in, that's why I'm still waffling on. You can fill them in and uh, you can drop them in the baskets on the way out and we'll collect them up. But I do hope that's given you some food for thought to think about Jesus uh, as the only way to God, not through our own efforts but purely because of what he's done. I'm going to hand it back over to Aaron and he's going to wrap up for us.